Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 61. I'm actually going to stray from our usual format today instead of a five-minute quickie boss tip episode. Today, you're hearing part two of the Bossed Up Live podcast show that I held in New York City last month, thanks to General Assembly NYC. So on Tuesday, you heard my interview with Natalia Shelburne. This is the second portion of the show, which featured a career conundrum Q&A live with our audience, at which time I was joined by two incredible guests to answer career conundrums live. And those two women who joined me for this rapid fire panel are Neckpen Oswan and Erin Turingen. Now, Neckpen is a seasoned data analytics professional and the co-founder and CEO of Women Work. That's work with an E, <laughs> Women Work a New York City-based women's empowerment nonprofit, and she just stepped up and accepted an exciting new position as the manager of Analytics Insights at Deloitte. Now, my second panelist, Erin Turingen, who you'll also hear me answering Career Conundrums Live, is a clinical pharmacy manager, a peer-reviewed author, and a speaker. She's also the blogger behind an awesome blog I love called Coffee Meets Polished. It's a lifestyle blog. She's a great career blogger, a wellness advocate, and someone who really talks a lot about her intersecting identities and how that shapes her choices, both from a lifestyle perspective and a career perspective. I hope you enjoy this interactive panel. And if you want to ask career conundrum questions of me live and my expert guests, don't forget to register now to join me for free at our upcoming DC live podcast show on October 22nd. That one's going to be all about women and wealth. Again, it's free to attend on Monday, October 22nd. A link with all the details to get your free ticket is in today's show notes. And now let's jump right into the conversation we had live at General Assembly NYC. What do you do when you've messed up? <laughs> I'm coming from a bit of a different field, but I'm a journalist and I recently had an article come out that like people really dislike and rightly so. It just was not my best piece. And I just feel so like ugh, I ruined everything. <laughs> Anyone here relate to that? Let's just give it a little snaps if you do. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering the same thing because I will tell you about a story of, I don't know what's in the air this week, but I messed up majorly yesterday on a high paying corporate clients webinar. But we'll, t we'll tell you that story after we hear this great advice because I could use it right now. I mean, I think that it's great that you've recognized that you messed up because I've met so many people who happen to be men who <laughs> tend to not really be able to recognize when they mess up. <laughs> so that's great. <laughs> Point one. 
Two, I think it's important to reflect. So what comes out of reflection is often the answer of where do I need to go next, right? So, you know, definitely don't sit on it too long, but I think that there's power in learning moments like this for you. And to name that learning is going to uplift you in a way that allows you to move forward and forgive yourself. I think it's so important to forgive yourself first. I think we often say, I messed up. I need to go apologize to X, Y, and Z. But once you sort of do that, I think you take away your own power. So I want you to like reflect on what you did, what you learned from that, right? Whether it's a narrative you want to stay away from or a particular story that you don't need to be writing about right out of this experience, or maybe a way to to craft your skill set as a journalist a little differently so that it's more successful the next time. I think doing that with yourself first allows you to come from a place of power to be able to talk to other people. I think sometimes as women, we tend to be very, I'm sorry and apologetic because we think that's the way to fix things and it lowers the eyes of your manager. I'll be honest, like, cause I've had people on my team who've messed up and instead of coming to me with the three things they learn and how they want to pivot to not do it again, they come to just say, I'm sorry. And I think I'm sorry is not quite as empowering as I'm sorry, but here's what I'm going to change. And here's what I've learned. So that would be my advice. Take some time, reflect on what you learn come to whoever you need to like confess and fess up to and say like, I know I did this wrong. Here's what I recognize. And here's how it's going to change moving forward. So that you still have that esteem that you need as a professional to make your next round more successful. And just to add to that first, I would say, I would think to myself, did I actually do something wrong? Or is it just in a really unpopular opinion that other people don't appreciate? Because at the end of the day, if it's something that you did your due diligence on, you did all your research, you reported something, you wrote something that you were proud of and wasn't incorrect, then I think that's something that you just have to take to heart and understand that this is a strengthening moment. But then also a a second um, piece of advice I have is in pharmacy and in medicine, they have what's called medication safety. And so if a mistake happens that actually could have reached a patient or could have harmed a patient, there's actually a complete culture where you're not supposed to blame anybody. You're supposed to figure out what happened in the system that went wrong and how we can learn from it moving forward. Because the moment you blame yourself or you blame some person, instead of trying to fix the system, then everyone could potentially do the mistake again, or someone can get hurt. So I would, I would do those two things, reflect on whether or not it was really a mistake. And if it's not, then you can just strengthen from it or figure out what's wrong in the system that could prevent something from happening again. That is such good advice. I'm over here like taking notes mentally. So... I'm going to go out on a limb here. I told myself I wasn't going to tell this story, especially so new, but I'm going to tell it. I consider myself a relatively capable and intelligent person. Of course. But time zones continue to elude me. And so part of my work, the way I keep all my prices super low for individuals like at Boston Bootcamp is by charging corporations who have much bigger budgets, a healthy sum of money, for all the intellectual property that we create and can provide to help their teams, whether it's preventing burnout or being more assertive communicators or just retaining and developing their female talent. And one such company, an engineering firm, like a global engineering firm, booked me nine months ago when I still had my right-hand woman, my partnerships director, Emmy, shout out to Emmy if you're listening, who scheduled this for me. And somehow... As I was recording a podcast interview in my basement studio the other day, I come out of that interview 
to a series of pretty frantic emails from my client. The entire company is on the webinar. Where are you? And this had been 40 minutes had gone by. And I had my phone. Nobody blew up my phone or anything. But I'm thinking, like, you know that feeling in the pit of your stomach where your whole body just washes with shame? Yeah. I'm just in like a shame shower in my kitchen with my dog. I'm like dog sitting for a friend. Everything was already crazy. It was a very intense day to begin with. And I'm like, I have to wrap this interview up. I'm so sorry. I have to go. I just totally messed up on a paid company-wide webinar that I just no-showed for. And I've never in my entire life done anything like no-showing at an event someone's paying you to run. So the first thing I did was call the client directly after I like could breathe normally and said, you know, I am so sorry. I don't know what happened. I had you on the schedule for two hours from now. And that's when it hit me. I was like, Denver time, East Coast time, two hour difference, those time zones got me again. And I said, you know, I'm assuming everybody's off the line now, but if not, I'm ready to go if you're ready. And she was like, no, we didn't wait for you for 40 minutes and just stay waiting. I'm going to have to get back to you on rescheduling. I'm just glad to hear you're okay. So like, that's the best possible client reaction you could ever ask for, right? Like, no, I'm not unconscious in a ditch somewhere, but thank you for asking. I might feel that way right now. I definitely (laughs) did. And so I said to her, this is not the way I do business. I cannot apologize enough. I'm going to get back to you with all the times that I can make this up to you as soon as possible. And of course, some way to rectify this. AKA, like, what can I do for you? <laughs> you know, let me look at how much you're paying me for this and see what, what we can do there. And then I got off the phone and wanted to just, you know, slump over in a heap and just like pull the covers over my head and just call it. But something happened this time that in my earlier part of my career would never have happened. And a little voice in the back of my head after about a minute of saying, wow, you really this up or, you know, just beating myself up. There was another little voice in there that said, nobody's perfect. Not even you. (laughs) And I was like, you're right. Like nobody's perfect. I'm doing this solo. I'm sans assistant right now. And then I started to do the harder work, which was analyzing the system failure. And I also, the other key thing that I did was I texted my husband. That's still new. I'm not used to saying that yet, but yay. I texted Brad the boo and was like, wow, check this out. Like, look at what I did just now, just because I needed somebody else other than my dog (laughs) to hear what was going on. And to me, there's something really emotionally relieving of telling someone who loves you unconditionally that you totally messed something up. And so once I had gotten it out of my own head, and, and started like playing a different narrative that was like, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. Every time the shame shower would come back, which it did periodically throughout the course of the day, as I was emailing back and forth with this client, I just had to repeat that to myself. So for me, it's always about the reframing and the getting it out of your own little bubble to like put it out there and try to shake it out a little bit. Yeah. My fourth year of pharmacy school, I had an entire year that I was doing a research project that required tons and tons of data collection and analytics and, and all that. And I wasn't going to get it done before I graduated. And so what I did was I ignored the emails of my mentor. I ignored the emails of my preceptor until the very last day of the deadline and gave her something that was haphazardly put together. And she said, I'm not putting my name on this. You're not presenting this poster. And she 
emailed my rotations director with the receipts, the emails that she tried to to send to me that I didn't respond and all those things and said, this isn't happening anymore. And so that was truly failing. And so what I did was I called my dad crying because he's a professor. He has worked with students with research. And I said, have you ever had this happen before? And he's like, yeah, all the time. So this is what you're going to do. You're going to own it and you're going to learn from it. And you know that you messed up, but you're not the first and you're not the last. For a good book on this, because I can't not recommend books when it comes to this. And did you see how it felt like better just to hear other women's like failures? <laughs> That's what Jessica Bacall figured out and put into a book, her anthology of short stories by very successful women of their biggest failures is called Mistakes I Made at Work. And I can't recommend it enough. She's here in New York. Someday I'll get her on the pod. Jessica, come on the podcast if you're listening to this. Let's all tweet her. But yes, thank you for asking that very real question. And do we have another career conundrum for we've got one back there and then we'll come up here. Hi, uh, Caroline. I work at a digital media agency. And as many of us in New York are coming to realize, and as we progress in our career, there's a certain corporate bureaucracy that you have to contend with at times. And sometimes the politics of that can almost be defeating in and of itself. How do you guys deal with those sorts of like corporate things whenever you're finally getting a peek behind the curtain as you progress? What like gets you in the door every day? That's a great question. And I have a lot of experience in bureaucracy and politics because the hospitals that I work in and I trained in are corporations. They're huge. And they have relationships with universities and there's so much politics behind every decision that's made. And most of the time, especially where I was training in North Carolina, it was seats at the table full of white men. And it was really hard to get any sort of footing or voice in those kinds of situations. And so the way that I learned to do it and that I continue to do it is to really hone in on your skills of, for me, it was really understanding how to read a room, how to find, like Nick Penn had mentioned, the influencers. They're not always the ones at the table and the ones that are willing to take you on as potentially a mentee. So if you have some sort of female or even a male who knows and wants to lift your voice, those are the people that can get you in the door and then you have to do the work. You have to show that you can do it. Unfortunately, we really do have to prove ourselves a lot more. But if you take those small chances, they turn into bigger chances and into bigger chances. As long as you figure out just a few people, all you need are maybe two or three people that you have really good relationships with that they will then seat you next to them um, for a voice. Yeah, that's great advice. I've always struggled with this, if I'm honest. I've moved companies every three to four years because I struggle with this, which I don't mind moving. I think that transitioning from another role is something that's the skill set that I'm actually going to try to put in a book. Because I think in this generation, you cannot work the same place for 10 to 20 years. I think that's something that my parents sold me when I was younger that honestly no longer applies. But back to your question of like, how do you really get recognized to be promoted and get into those maybe C-suite level roles? As was mentioned, it's important to find the right actors and players. I think one thing that's important in any space, no matter what sector you work in, is that relationships 
move things. Relationships are more powerful than what you know in your head, unfortunately. So once we can admit that, that the power is not always in our hands, I think it forces us to get out of our comfort zone a little bit to find those key stakeholders in your company that will take the time to get to know you, will get you in front of the right projects, will get you the exposure you need so that you're recognized. The world is not a meritocracy, unfortunately. It is really about relationships. And my mentor early on told me something really cool, like an analogy or story of thinking about how to move up and things. Think, imagine you're at a party and there's a lot of people at the party, right? And you got in the door, there was a line to get in. That's your application phase. You got in the door, got into the company. There's everyone else on the dance floor. They're all dancing their best, trying to get the DJ's attention. But you want to be on the stage with the DJ, right? So you might look at the DJ and wink at the DJ. You might dance really well. That might get you noticed because you're dancing better than everybody else. But really, if you just know the bouncer who's at the stage door, like you're getting it, right? <laughs> Which is the way of thinking about navigating work and promotion, right? Like we're all here dancing. We're all performing great. We might get recognized. But if your mentor, your sponsor is the person that knows that door for the conversation that's about to happen about who's getting on stage, that's who you need to talk to first. So that's my advice to you. Take the time to learn that at your company. Take the time to invest in people and people will invest in you. I think males do that more naturally, if I'm honest, in my experience. And I've started to learn that we need more women in C-suite roles, but I think men play the game better and we need to learn to play that game, which is why I started Women Work. I, I started seeing a lot of women who are super talented, particularly women of color, dipping out of companies like I was doing before it was time for them to actually get to C-suite. And they were doing that because they hadn't taken the time to play the game. So I've learned over time that that's something I want to work on. And that's really what everyone else is doing. I love what you're talking about. And you know what? I have to jump in and say, I think part of the reason women don't do this necessarily as much as our male counterparts is because it kind of takes a bit of leisure time. It almost takes thinking about relationship building, like having fun, like making friends. And who the hell has time to do that when we're shouldering more than half of the caretaking responsibilities in this world and all the emotional labor in this world and all the office politics in this world? Like, of course, women don't have time to make friends on the golf course or whatever. But the reality is I spent my early parts of my career working, working, working head down giving 100% to my performance, when now I'm thinking it's more like 80-20. 20% of the time is spent looking at what my friend Jason Waski has, which he was on the podcast about male mentorship. He has a running spreadsheet that is like hundreds of, of rows long of the names of his network, member, like the person he met, what their kid's name is, what dog they have that they like, what city they're living in, what their hobbies are. And like, he takes my analog method of the business card flipping and takes it to a whole other digital level. But Jason has more cocktail meetups and lunch meetups and coffee chats with people than anyone else I know. And the reason he's so successful is because he spends a lot of leisure time or what looks like leisure time forging those relationships. So yes, it's not a meritocracy, but it's a skill we can all get better at. And if we look at networking more like making friends, which is hard to do in a world that still thinks women who are friendly are like coming on to you. <laughs> so it's definitely different for women, but I think that's an area of giving yourself more permission to spend time having fun and making friends with people in powerful places whenever possible. We had a question up here too. Hi, my name is Kimoy. 
My question is more about recruiters, and I'm not sure if you guys experienced in dealing with recruiters. Pretty much for the last two years, I wasn't looking prior, but now I am. I know how to negotiate when I'm dealing directly one-on-one with a company, but my challenge now is that if I get an opportunity through a recruiter, they automatically are like, no, this job doesn't pay more than this. When I know that it's possible based on, you know, it's something in my field and I have the experience, but they always want to just put a, a block on, no, it can't, this job does not pay more than X. So my challenge is I did speak to someone and she told me she had a different experience with a recruiter, but she's in a different field. And she was just like, no, when I've dealt with a recruiter, I've got this, this, and this, and they negotiated this for me. So then it kind of made me think like, wait, if I know how to negotiate when I'm dealing one-on-one with an HR person, and why did I ever not think to negotiate with the recruiter, possibly? I love this question. So thank you for asking it, Kamoyan. Thank you for being a Bossed Up Bootcamp alum who's back at our live show. Two things to keep in mind. One is you got to be candid with a recruiter about your salary requirements. You're not keeping that close to your chest in the same way that you would when negotiating with a company directly, right? Be candid with your recruiters. Sounds like you are. I would also push back on the recruiter directly and say, well, maybe this is negotiable. What do you think? She might be trying to not waste your time and theirs. And if she still won't take that job position on as a prospective opportunity for you and try to negotiate it, you know, maybe she doesn't feel very confident in her own negotiation skills. In which case I would say, what is holding us back from reaching out to the organization directly. You know, it's not necessarily saying my recruiter's not working for me. I'm going to email HR directly and, and seek this job. But it's more like, can I go on LinkedIn and find a second person connection? Can I find anyone I know who knows someone at this organization and find my way in another way? Because those person to person contacts come in handy so much better. Whenever I run across people who are having trouble finding jobs online, I always say, get offline and find a way in the back door. Meet the bouncer. Yeah, I I don't have direct experience with a recruiter, but I have done recruitment and hiring and understand that HR can be a barrier in itself as well. So, you know, me as a hiring manager, I might not get certain applicants based on the filter that I created. And so sometimes you'll, the HR group will send you know, me applications and I'm not getting what I want and realize that I need to maybe expand the filter. And so from the hiring manager end, I can see that there's a filter there that I can control, but also I can also receive direct emails, like Emily had said, from someone saying, hey, just in case my application didn't come through for any reason, I'd love to set up some time to chat on the phone or anything like that. It's not wrong to do something like that. I think that this is a great example of some of the ways in which women, I think, get lower pay. Sorry, I'm a conspiracy theorist, if you haven't noticed. I think that there's a lot of systemic things we need to change. So you're right. Most jobs that a recruiter, a third-party hire is trying to hire for, they will lowball you every time. Ladies, don't drink the Kool-Aid. They're lowballing every time because the third-party hire company, and I do this because I get hired when I was at Morgan Stanley, I used to get hired from either internal or third party, and they're getting a cut of whatever lowball they're giving you. So there's an incentive for most recruiters to tell you that the price is X when it actually is probably higher. You know, like it's crazy how people will 
do that. And it's all about money. I, I wouldn't take it personally, right? Like you don't need to get offended that someone tells you a number that you think is ridiculous. Just realize it's because of the money. They're trying to get whatever's left beyond your salary for, from this uh, hire. And I would go in just with the research that you would have done when you were talking with HR, right? Talk about your accolades, talk about what the market says is the value, right? So use PayScale, Glassdoor. These are all great sites that can tell you what a role is legitimately worth that you can go in and say, I just don't think that's true. Now, if someone wants to rescind a conversation because of money, you need to be like, fine, you need to take that role away from me because clearly this is not going to end well for either party. Like I'm not going to get what I want. You're not going to be able to really trust me because you don't think I know what I know, but I do know what I know. So it's not a good relationship to start. And that can be tough, right? Depending on what situation you're in, if you really like the job, if you really like the company, sometimes you don't want to walk away from that low ball. But I think if more women can go in with a firm ask and have that be so, we would see a change in the market that would help us all. So I would just say, recognize the system, come in with information and be tough because you deserve it. All right. I think we have time for one, maybe two more quick questions. Yes. Hi. I don't want to say my name because my, like in case my employer is listening to this, but basically my question boils down to how do you advocate for yourself? Cause I'm, I just graduated college and I'm working on an internship where I don't necessarily feel valued, but also I don't think I am getting the work that I signed up for in the job description. And um, I was talking with a mentor and she was like, you really need to advocate for yourself. And so how do you do that and say you are worthy of like work that you should be doing? Thank you for asking that question. None of us learn in school how to advocate for ourselves. We learn how to perfect, perform, and please everybody around us. That's what gets us A's. And by the way, women get way more A's. Like we know how to do that. We're very good taskmasters, to-do list layers, problem solvers. And advocating for yourself is the opposite of all of that. So if you're feeling like these skills are rusty or you're not sure where to start, that's because your entire life up until now, you've been training for a different skill set, which is why this stuff gets so hard in life after college. I'm going to hold off on giving any direct advice, but this is like my exact area that I love to dive in on. But first I want to hand it off to you too. So I think that, um, some advice that someone told me earlier on, namely my dad, my dad is like my favorite feminist in the world. Um, <laughs> he, he reminds me daily that everything's negotiable. Everything is negotiable. That means the job that you were hired to do, your employer thought it was negotiable to change that when you got there. Everything is negotiable, right? So I would really advise that maybe you find one or two, you know, permanent staff or manager and really get to know them and share your story and maybe share very transparently that like, this is what you had hoped to be doing more of. And if that person's a good manager, a good people manager, in theory, they will take that and harness it to pivot your experience a little bit more for you. I always try to do that with my interns. I only see them like twice the semester because I take them out for coffee when they join. And I do like a wrap up just to see how it was for them. And I wish more interns would have come to me if they felt that they weren't having a good experience to really advocate and just share what they're thinking. I think when you put it out there, you might be surprised at the type of reception you might get. And it might give you more of the type of work you're looking to do. That would be my advice. Yeah, absolutely. My advice is very similar and really relatable to me right now, actually, because my job as a job description right now isn't where I intended to be. It's what got me to New York City but it's not where I hope to be even in, maybe in the next few years. And so how I rationalized it with myself was that I have monthly meetings with my boss. Well, I told her first at the interview that 
I eventually want to do something like this, but I'm going to do this because we're going to build something from the ground up together. And so then I told her after a few months of doing a really good job, showing up, doing that front leg work. And I said, do you see growth for me? Do you see that maybe I could be doing something else? And so then I think my boss is pretty good. She said, well, what do you have in mind? And so you also have to be prepared for that chance to advocate for yourself, have it written down somewhere, have your mantra, have a script where you can say, oh, this is my chance. Okay, now I'm gonna say exactly what I want. So I told her. And so it didn't take the next day, it didn't even take the next week, but a month later, an opportunity came around where she said, hey, this is an opportunity that I think would align with what you're looking to do. It's not glamorous still, and it's still also in the beginning phases, but I want, I'm going to task you on this. You better believe I'm trying my best to do an amazing job on it because that's going to be part of my accolades for whenever that job comes that I can look into. And my boss is looking out for me because I was transparent with her with what I wanted. I love what you said about everything is negotiable, by the way, because that is in the Bossed Up Manifesto, which you're all holding in your hands right now. Three things to keep in mind. First, explore your options. You're a better negotiator when you have options. So if you feel like this is the only internship I'll ever have, this is the only job opportunity I have, it's the only iron in the fire, so to speak, you're not going to feel in a position of power to go in courageously, nor should you necessarily. If it's this or I can't pay rent next month, you're not in a strong negotiation position. So start exploring your options elsewhere now. And that'll make you feel like you're making progress in another domain to meet the same end. The second is to ask to ask for what you want. So as you're clarifying what it is that you're going to ask your manager for, don't just walk into their office one day and say, my job description sucks. I want to change everything about it. Obviously get on their calendar, say, Hey, I was wondering if we could find a time to check in maybe weekly or monthly. I'd love to set up a time to talk about how this internship is going so far. At which point they'll be like, Oh, I should have been doing that with my interns more often. And they're going to be like, you're right. You do deserve more time than I've been giving you because I'm probably overworked as well. So ask for the time before you ask for what you're asking for. And then go in with a clear set of, is there a way to provide more experience on this front while I'm here? And also when you're asking for stuff, be ready to get some feedback, unsolicited or explicitly solicited. Because if you're crushing it, you're going to want to know what they're appreciating about what you're doing. And if you're not, it's going to make the way you ask for what you want a little different right? Like if I'm able to meet your expectations, can we bring more of this into the role and less of this into the role? So I don't think it behooves anybody to go in saying you sold me this as the job description and I'm doing that. And this is total bullshit. And you lied to me, <laughs> even if that's very true, right? Which some of us get real like full-time jobs in which that happens. So consider yourself lucky to be in an internship because it's an easier thing to skip out on when a better opportunity comes your way. Excellent. We have time for one more question. Thank you for asking such great questions. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for this. I'm so excited to be here. My name's Anna, and I work at a startup. It's called Fairy God Boss, which Emily, you might know about that. So I've been there for almost a year and it's been amazing. I feel like I'm spoiled right out of school. I started a few months after graduating and I'm supported by amazing women 
a couple men too that work at the organization. And I've been really given the opportunity to explore different things for this first six months. I was doing basically anything and everything because it's a startup and you really got to be able to do anything. And I've transitioned into a full-time sales role, which I'm loving. And I never expected to be doing that at all. But my um, two bosses were like, you know what? This is something that you should work on. This is something that we see you could be good at. And let's kind of try it out and go from there. So with that being said, I have been enjoying it. I've been learning a lot about myself, about sales, about the industry, et cetera, et cetera. But I feel like I also want to continue to do, you know, continuous education and coming to events like this and meeting new people. And I'm in a space where I'm really supported to try new things and meet new people and whatnot. So I would love to hear from you guys. I mean, Emily, you've kind of turned your passion project into a full-time gig. And both of you ladies have, you know, your side hustles, right? So I'd love to hear kind of what your exploratory phase was as far as like, oh, this seems like something I could like pursue or look more into or write about or, you know, post on social media about more. Because that's something that I feel I'm in a space that I'm supportive to do that. So I want to be able to really invest my time when I'm in that kind of supportive space. So exploring... That's a great idea. And I just recently had the time to be able to do that. And so it feels really great coming out of, you know, school for so long and training for so long. It was really hard to even give myself permission to do that. And so, you know, congratulations for being in a place that has a great culture that supports innovation. I think for me, it was really understanding first that a lot more is possible than what I thought. And being here and being in tech or surrounded by tech was really helpful. I think if the question is about how to hone in on your innovation and your ideas, really, I did a lot of exploring of what other people were doing that I want to be doing. So a lot of what Emily does, a lot of what a lot of other podcasters that I listen to, a lot of businesses that I look at, I look for the things that I want to be doing eventually. And when I find those things, I follow those things, I learn from them, I engage with the people that are there, and I maybe even reach out to them to say, hey, can we chat and learn a little bit about what you're doing and how I might be able to do something along those lines. So I think in the exploratory phase, it's a lot of learning and collecting information. And then the next phase really is throwing things around and seeing what sticks because you don't necessarily have a certain brand yet or a certain thing that you want to hone in on quite yet. And that's actually a really great place to be. I saw this tweet or quote from someone that said that this phase right now of growth and where no one's following you yet, maybe no one knows who you are, is the perfect time to make mistakes and try new things. Because once a lot more eyes are on you, the stakes are a lot higher. So I would just embrace this time to try anything and everything. Yeah. I'm a serial entrepreneur in a sense, because I kind of like you, like I want to learn about new things and then I'll make it a thing um, and then I'll jump to something else. So I'm really proud of myself. I've been with Women Work for five years and we're reaching now like over 5,000 women. We've partnered with every major tech company to host our events on supporting women of color more effectively. I think that came out of a pure place than just wanting to start something. So I would first, you know, give you advice to spend time with the thoughts and the things that you want to explore and see where that comes from and why that is. 
not to sort of undermine yourself. You should go ahead and get started. I'm not saying like take a year to do that. But I think once you've identified what the seed of that inspiration is, you can always tap into it when things get tough. Because as an entrepreneur, it's much tougher. As you know, it's like riskier for your own ego (laughs) than anything you'll do. So I would say, you know, identify sort of the motivation and the core that you can help stay grounded with so that your journey, even when it goes up or down is, is coming from a good place. My second advice is to really learn from a lot of other people. You know, as you said, it's important to find people who are doing similar work, ask them for just 30 minutes of their time to learn how they got started. It'll help you build some of the frameworks that I think, you know, some people skip over when they hear about entrepreneurship. They think it's about me, my passion, and that alone will carry you. There's some basic underlying structures like a budget, or creating a project plan, right? Creating a social media strategy that's critical for anything they're doing nowadays. So chatting with a lot of people who are doing it well will provide you some solid foundation. My last piece of advice about exploration is to make sure you forgive yourself. You will fail at something or things will not go as well as you think. That doesn't mean you're not doing a good job, right? If you don't get the sort of attention that you want or the number of sales or followers that you want, it doesn't mean you're not doing a good job. Everyone puts in like, you know how they talk about skill set for 10,000 hours of skills to get really good at something? I think entrepreneurs put in that much more before they sort of hit their glow up. So keep going. Don't let the setbacks hold you down and build that grit as you're working along. Is my advice. I love it. And the last things I'll add to that already sound array of advice is to just start creating. Go from exploring to creating. And I think creation is a nice broad term in that it might mean writing a plan. It might mean designing a logo. It might mean hosting an event and just seeing what happens. Just start creating. And I still today try to reserve as much time as I can in my schedule for pure creation. Because to me, that's exploration meeting action. And you can't iterate and improve upon something until you got something. So even if it's just to like tickle your own fancy, even if it's just a comic that makes you chuckle, like make it, you know, and then put it out there and see what happens. You'd be surprised how many people come out of the woodwork from Facebook, let's say, who you haven't seen in 20 years, perhaps, and say, I'm into that. I'm into what you're doing. And that's the community thing. Like nobody can react to it until you act. So act, get to action. And then the second thing is, and this is super real, not everyone's passion will ever yield a paycheck. And we got to take the pressure off of the paycheck part of this because I remember going into Bostop being like, listen, I'm gonna give it like two years, see if there's any kind of a business model that I could make out of this that I would feel good about that would be sustainable, but I would still feel morally aligned with the kind of change I want to create. But if not, I'm just going to have to make it a nonprofit and figure out how to fundraise. (laughs) Like, I think the pressure to profit is just so misguided. It limits your creativity. It kills your art, whatever art we're talking about, like creating community or painting or writing or whatever. So yes, we all need to eat. Yes, we all need roofs over our head. But for a long time, Bostop didn't provide either of those things for me. And there was a huge likelihood that it would never do that. And maybe someday it won't. I don't know. I mean, like I still, I still stay up at night sometimes thinking like, should I just get a day job on top of this? I don't know. But the curiosity factor can see you through to finding a way to make that sustainable or make it peacefully coexist with whatever else pays the bills. Hobbies is what we used to call them. 
member. <laughs> and I'm all about bringing hobbies back. So I think everyone here tonight is a multi-passionate person. Everyone we've interviewed tonight has a lot going on. Everyone here tonight has a lot of different passions we'd all like to pursue. And I think the more we talk about them and pursue those with curiosity and not pressure to succeed, the better off we'll all be. Let's give it up to, for Aaron and Nick Penn for joining us tonight. I hope you enjoyed my career conundrum rapid fire game that we played with Nick Penn Osuan and Aaron Turingen. I certainly enjoyed having them on. Thanks to you two ladies for sharing your wisdom and advice in real time. And thanks to the brave women who raised their hands and asked a career conundrum and shared their conundrums and asked those questions with courage. If you have a career conundrum you want me to tackle next on this podcast, I'm going to ask you to do right now this same thing I asked everyone in our live audience in New York City to do, and that is to save the Bossed Up podcast hotline number in your phone. Because even if you're not thinking of a particular conundrum you're facing at work or in your life right now, when the moment strikes, you might want to have this number on speed dial ready to roll so you can call in and inspire a future episode to answer your question. Once again, that number is 910-668-BOSS or 26 Seven, seven. Thanks as always for tuning in. I want to hear what you think about the advice that Neck Pen, Aaron, and I gave to our live audience members who asked career conundrums at our live podcast show. Take a screenshot of today's episode and tag me on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook and tell me what you think. I'd love to hear from you. And I'd love to hear from you if you've got additional advice for our question askers to consider. In the meantime, keep Boston in pursuit of your purpose and together... Let's lift as we climb. First, I want to welcome to the stage Nick Penn Osuan, who is an awesome data analytics pro. I think she's live streaming this event right now. <laughs> But that's cool. I uh, I highly appreciate and encourage all of that. She's a seasoned analytics professional, co-founder and CEO of Women Work. That's work with an E. Women Work. Hey, good. I'm so glad you're here. Um, her bio is so full of accolades that we might be here all night if I were to go through it all. But just a few weeks ago, you should know that she stepped up as the new manager of Analytics Insights at Deloitte. So three cheers for new job. And total boss. So one thing you should know is just click that button for green when you're ready to talk and then mute it with red when you're not talking. Um, but Nick Penn, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be here. Nice to see everyone. Awesome. And joining us on stage as well is Aaron. Ooh. Turingen. Did I get it? Turingen. 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 Oh, I've been working on it. I didn't get it. Turingen. Erin Turingen is here. She is a pharmacist who's got a lot to share about uh, her path into STEM science fields and also has this badass blog that's all about exploring the intersections of her cultural identity as the child of a Filipina immigrant uh, and her work and her career as a young professional here in the Big Apple. I'm so excited to be joined by the two of you. Thank you. Thank Great you for having me. Here. Awesome. So first, a few questions for each of you uh, individually, just to give some context to our panelists here so you know 
who you're getting answers from. Um, so first, Nekpen, you were born in Nigeria and raised in Houston. That's right. Yeah? Yeah. So tell me, what lessons from your sort of international roots have helped you navigate your way to achieving such success in technology and finance? Yeah. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Nekpen, as was mentioned. Follow our um, page, Women Work, because we continue these amazing conversations that Emily has started tonight. Um, for me, growing up as a first-gen American has been very much, I think, a blessing that I didn't realize when I was younger. So when I was younger, my parents would never let me sleep over at people's houses. Nigerians are very skeptical about this whole like home visit thing that Americans do. Um, what else? My parents never really spent a lot of money on anything, even though we had money. Um, we were very frugal. Um, what else? Uh, college was not a choice. It was like you're going to college because we did not come all the way to this country for you to choose to not go to college. That's not really a thing. Um, and growing up, I feel I was sort of told that hard work pays off in a way that I don't know that this generation might have. I think a lot of people are cynical of the American dream right now. And I grew up with a complete passion for it. Like if you work really hard, if you do what you're supposed to do, the world will work out right. Um, of course, there's like discrimination and inequality, but I was always just sort of reminded that your role is to do what you can do and to control what you can control. and Everything else is not your problem right now. So that was really great um, growing up to have that um, perspective. I love that. And I also just want to provide a little context for folks here on your job, your position. So I know the Deloitte job is very new, but previously at Morgan Stanley, it almost sounded like the work you were doing in data was a little bit of diplomacy. Oh, yes. Of communicating between the finance folks and the technology folks, which almost carries the theme through right from Natalia's career of entering into tech, but with softer skills that were a big part of that. Tell us about the nature of that, that work. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think when I started off uh, as a data scientist, I quickly learned all the programming skills that you need to sort of get in the door. But then I found out in, that in order to be a manager, you really have to have soft skills. You have to be able to communicate that data beyond your little team. You have to negotiate resources with other teams, which I, I did mostly at Morgan Stanley, just making sure that everyone was happy so that the work could actually get done and we could deliver for our clients. Um, and that's a skill set that I think you learn along the way. So for those in the room that maybe are younger in your career, you know, definitely keep your head down and do the work right. But at some point, it's important to like raise your head up and look at who's in the room, um, who's an influencer in your space, in your job, who needs you to make them look good so that you can get promoted. These are like the real things that data scientists sometimes think that they're innocuous to, and it's not the truth. In any space, you need to be able to really add value to the social conversations that are happening in your company. So that's what um, I did at Morgan Stanley for three and a half years. Awesome. Yeah. And you have such a wide array of experiences that I'm sure you'll bring to bear on this conversation tonight. Thank you again for being here. So Aaron, we're going to talk about like science science with you, which I'm so glad we have represented in our lineup tonight because a lot of STEM is not just tech, right? It's actual science, in, in this case, the medical sciences. And Aaron told me that similarly to your college anecdote, Nick Penn, that being the child of an immigrant, she felt the pressure to become a doctor pretty strongly. So she rebelled and became a pharmacist. Yes. 
Big jump, big jump. So tell me about that decision. Tell me about that journey. It required a ton of education and where you are now. Absolutely. So as Emily mentioned, I have Filipino parents, first generation immigrants. College was not a choice. Something after college wasn't a choice. In fact, both of my parents have postgraduate degrees. My mom has a master's degree in science, and my dad is a full-time professor at a university with a PhD. So there really was no turning back from anything after, um, from stopping after college. And for me, I told my parents in high school really early on, I do not want to be a doctor. That's just too much school. It's too much time. Um, I, and they're like, okay, well, what about nursing? Well, I really don't want to be at the whim of physicians telling me what to do either. So where's maybe a happy medium? And so that's when I, someone told me about pharmacy. And for me, pharmacy was always that pick your medications up from a CVS or a pharmacy and somewhere nearby. And they just put bottles from, put medications from a big, a big bottle to a little bottle. That's what I knew about pharmacy. And so it turns out pharmacy is everywhere. It's actually in tech. It's actually in the industry. It's in hospitals. It's in clinics and in the community that you all know today. So the way that I got my feet wet was I actually became a technician um, because I wanted to see if I liked it. And so I actually loved it. I loved, I worked for CVS for five years and I'm probably one of the few that said that I actually loved it um, because I love the interaction with people. And so that is something that really has transcended across every experience that I've had. Um, and so I got my undergrad in biology, lots of science there, all that fun organic chemistry and things like that. But then came pharmacy school where we learned even more about drug structures and things like that. But that was four years of translating hard sciences to how it affects us as humans, as people, and how at the end of the day you can take that medication to do what we ask. So a lot of science isn't just that hard science. It's a lot of influence and soft skills and leadership and management. Um, and so one of the things that I loved is um, that any skill that you have in one industry actually affects and applies to anything. And so after a long journey with actually three degrees, uh, residency where you do 16 hours a day, 12 days on, two days off. Um, there was a lot of burnout and a lot of, am I, do I really want this? Is this something that I wanted or that my parents just put on me? And now what does that mean? That I'm here in New York and I'm seeing all kinds of other things that you can do with your time. Um, and that's really where Coffee Meets Polish came around because it's where I really wanted to figure out who I was now that I'm almost 30 and I was in school for so long and that's all that I knew of myself, just really finding myself and realizing that there's other things in life than just work. I love that because both of you have what I would consider passion projects with Women Work, a nonprofit that empowers women throughout the New York City area and Coffee Meets Polished, which has an online reach. What did Coffee Meets Polished provide for you? And what are you most proud of in terms of your impact there? And then we're going to open it up to questions, FYI. So get ready. So I think what I'm most proud of is it gave an introvert like me an avenue to have my own voice, one that I could choose myself, that I could craft myself, 
that I could take days and hours editing and in a room by myself, which is like the best uh, environment that an introvert could have to craft their message. Um, but also to be able to say things that I thought was only something I felt. And really the ones that I think that I feel are the only things I felt are the ones that have the biggest impact um, with engagement in other people. Those are the ones that get the most messages um, in my Instagram. Those are the ones that I get texts from my friends that read it saying, oh my gosh, I had no idea you felt that way. Me too. Um, so that's really what I'm most proud of is um, being able to, to speak those messages that people think they're alone. Let's face it, speaking up at work can be really hard to do, especially for women and women of color. When the stakes are high and you've already worked so hard to just be the only woman in the room and you want to get everything right, you want to have all your facts and figures accurate before making your voice heard, it's just so much easier to stay silent instead. Researcher Deb Chahansky calls this loss of voice phenomenon. And it actually emerges in adolescent women at greater rates than men. And it sticks with us for the rest of our lives. Self-silencing behavior can actually become an unconscious habit unless we consciously engage in practicing our assertive communication skills. And we here at Bossed Up have set out to help women like you do just that. Speak Up, my live assertive communication course is back open for enrollment, and we're kicking off a new cohort launching this June. Over the course of eight life-changing weeks, you'll have access to interactive online curriculum and live weekly practice sessions where you, Irene and I, and a cohort of fellow Speak Up bosses who are owning their voice, overcoming the social messages that have taught us to keep silent, and really learning to strategically and assertively communicate when it matters most, we'll actually have the practice time to rewire our brains, create new neural pathways, and build better habits when it comes to speaking up with confidence and precision and assertively communicating in the workplace. Learn more and enroll today to secure your spot at bossedup.org speakup. That's bossedup.org speakup.